you're getting settled, go ahead and pull out your Bible. A couple things I want you to know about um, before we get into the Word together today. When you come back here next Sunday, you're going to get a front row seat to everything that God is doing right now in our church, in our student ministries, which is a lot, by the way. We've seen um, this student ministry blow up in the right way, all right? Um, the thing is just going crazy. It's so cool, and kids are being impacted by the gospel in our church in amazing ways. So when you come back next Sunday, the whole service is going to be a student ministry Sunday, and you're going to see students involved in every facet of our worship. It'll be a student worship team, which if you think is a step down, you're in for a big surprise, by the way, because we've got some uber-talented kids in our church. Students taking the offering, students sharing their testimony, and you're going to enjoy that. Come back next week anticipating amazing things. And then the following Sunday when you come back, you're going to get a front-row seat on Sunday night if you come to all that God is doing in the hearts of people who have come to faith in Jesus because we're going to have a baptism service. And it's going to be awesome. I don't know if you've been in a baptism service at our church, but it's basically a big party. And what we do is the moment those people come out of the water, the, the place just goes crazy with celebration and clapping, and it's a wonderful time. So we invite you to come back. Baptism services are a community life event, which means we, we want the church to be together to welcome people when they come out of the waters and say to them, you're a part of the family of God now. You're a part of the people of Jesus, and we love you. And we have to be there to, to do that, don't we? So come back on February 24th, Sunday night, for our baptism service. We'll be telling you more about that. But right now, we're going to get into the Word. I'm very excited about it. Would you open your Bible to Isaiah in the Old Testament? The ushers are here with um, Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and uh, we'll get into the Word together. Last Sunday, if you were here, we launched into this new series of teachings out of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 53. And this is the series that's going to take us all the way up to Easter. And we're calling this series, if you've got your bulletin there, we're calling this series, Behold Your God, which is a phrase that comes right out of the chapter that we're in again today, chapter 40, verse 9. Isaiah says, Behold Your God. And if you were here last week, here's what I suggested to you. I suggested that there's nothing that will get you moving in your Christian life more than to see God in all of his glory. To see him, to behold finally, maybe for the first time, to behold the full splendor and the majesty of God. This is what God wants to do. And this is the purpose of the book of Isaiah, is to help us see God even just a little bit more clearly, to be in his presence, to enjoy him. And God knows that if we could just see him for who he really is, that is the answer to every single one of our longings. And that is the solution to every single one of our problems. And so this is why God inspired his prophet Isaiah to write this book. And Isaiah is going to be our guide. And this morning, Isaiah wants to teach us another lesson about who God is. So will you turn to Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 12 with me? If you were to ask me to summarize in one word the vision of God that Isaiah is going to paint now in the rest of chapter 40, if I had to summarize it with one word, the one word that I would choose is the word 
balance. You say balance, that's a strange word. It is a strange word, but go with me for just a minute. Is it possible that one of the biggest problems we have in our view of God is that we're a little bit out of balance? We've got, we've got this view of God where, where for some reason some things are weighted slightly more than they ought to be in how we see God. And some things are needing to be emphasized. And it's got us just a little bit out of balance. You know, balance is one of those things that we take so for granted in our lives that we forget how important it really is and how detrimental it is when you're out of balance, right? Have you ever seen a toddler try to walk when balance isn't quite yet a part of the equation? You know what I mean? I remember my girls when they were just learning to walk and they would get started. And do you know the forward momentum thing that happens when you're like a toddler? And then they start flying forward. And, and it's like there's not quite balance yet. And they're on their way across the room, whether there's a, a wall there or a corner or something, right? You know? Can you imagine if that was still a part of your life as an adult? You know? You get the hot coffee out here and you're on your way to the sanctuary. And it's like, move out of the way. I'm coming through, right? <laughs> balance. We need it, right? Here's the thing about balance. The other way that we use the word balance, balance means that different, different categories or different ideas are held equally. They're held in the right proportion. I'm a music guy, so I like to think about like sound and having really good, I like really good sound. So I have these headphones that are really great and, 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 and it all need, the sound needs to be perfectly balanced in order to be enjoyable. Have you ever had one of your headphones go out and you only can hear out of one side and it's kind of like, oh, it's uncomfortable and it, it's overemphasized in one side? That's, that's what I'm talking about here, right? You can still see God, but, it's, but what about, is it possible that sometimes some part of God is being blasted too loud into your ear and another aspect of who God is is getting almost no emphasis? What does that do to your Christian life, I wonder? Isaiah's depiction of God in chapter 40 is perfectly balanced, and that's what makes it so powerful. And in particular, Isaiah is going to show us two traits about God this morning that must be held in balance. The first thing that Isaiah wants to show us is that God is infinitely exalted above us. He's in, a, he's in a class all by himself. God's totally unique. He's totally other. The big fancy word that theologians use for that is the word transcendent. Transcendent. You probably heard that word, right? It just basically means God is one of a kind. It's not just that God is bigger than us. That's true. But actually what Isaiah is going to show us is God is in a completely different category than us. And the second trait that Isaiah is going to show us is that God, not only is God transcendent and totally other, but the next thing Isaiah wants to see is that God is super close. He's very personal. God is actually intimately involved in your life. And the big fancy word that theologians use for that is the word imminence. It's like God is just right up in your grill, <laughs> whether you want him to be or not, right? Now think about this for just a minute with me. Take those two concepts, transcendent and imminent, and think about how powerful it is when those get held together in perfect balance. All right? 
Or think about what happens when you get one of those way out of proportion and the other gets completely minimized. It's like only having one headphone working. If all you know of God is that he's distant and transcendent and he's out there, God becomes for you aloof and maybe even a little bit scary, disconnected. But if all you, all you emphasize is that God's up close and personal, God could become kind of mushy, you know, and impotent. We, we need them both. And Isaiah's going to show us both. And it's going to be really important for you to see both. Will you read it with me? Starting in verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 40. Here's how Isaiah says it. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Let me just pause right there. Did you notice that Isaiah uses a rhetorical tool? He, he, he uses these rhetorical questions that he throws at you, and they all start with the word who. Did you see that? So in verse 12, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? It's his vision of all of the waters of the entire earth in the cup of God's hand, you know? Or verse 13, who's measured the spirit of the Lord? That word spirit in the Hebrew means the full interior life of God, his thinking, his volition, his emotion. Who's measured that? Or verse 14, who did God consult? Who did God go to for wisdom or counsel? Who taught him the path of justice? Who, who, who? And the, and the, and the inferred answer of all of those questions, who did this, who did this? The, the answer is the same. And the answer is, not me. Not me. And not you, right? Not us. What's Isaiah doing here? Why is he doing this? This is really actually quite brilliant. Isaiah is saying, I want you to see how transcendent God is. But before you can see that, the one thing you have to do is you have to remove yourself from the center of the universe. If you're going to see just how transcendent God is, the first thing you got to move is you got to remove yourself out of the center of the picture because God knows that we tend to be sort of self-centered. Even when we're trying to conceive of God, we, tr we, we tend to begin with ourselves and our own categories and our own language and our own ways of thinking. And that's how we start to try to conceive of God or define God or picture God. And Isaiah says, it's never going to work. You're never going to see God clearly if you begin with yourself. The first thing you got to do is remove yourself out of the center. And then you'll be able to see God. I heard it said that, in the beginning, God created us in his image. And ever since then, we've been returning the favor, right? <laughs> we've been creating God in our image ever since then, right? That's a great way to think about sin. God created me in his image. And sin is really about me going, well, I don't really like that God. So I'm going to create another God to my liking. And so we sort of create our own God, right? Right? I don't like a God who 
and has all these demands on my life. I don't want a God who tells me what to do or what not to do. I don't like a God who's drawing different boundaries in life. So what I'll do is I'll just create a God that I like, right? And Isaiah says, if you, as long as you do that, you're never going to see God for who he really is. And if, you, and, if, and if it's a God of your own creation, that God is completely impotent. He'll never change your life because you created him. So you got to start there. Remove yourself. Isaiah says, let me show you God through God's eyes. Whoa, how powerful would that be? Well, now we can go back and understand verses 12, 13, and 14. We look at it. The first verse, verse 12, is a picture of God, the creator. It's this picture of God manipulating the elements of creation. The, all the dust of the earth, all the waters of the oceans. Verse 12 says, who measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. And you're supposed to picture all of the oceans of the earth in the cup of God's hand. It's this powerful, powerful image. Isaiah says, that's how big God is, you know. Can you imagine all the waters of the earth in the cup of God's hand? Imagine if you had to scoop the water out of your bathtub with the cup of your hand. Just imagine how long that would take you. You're thinking, Pastor, why would I ever do that? I don't know. That's not the point of the illustration. The point is, think about how small your hand is. And now imagine every single bit of water of every ocean in the palm of God's hand. That's how transcendent God is. Where he talks about the span of the heavens. Did you see that? Verse 12, that word span in the Hebrew means the distance between the thumb and the pinky. And Isaiah says, imagine how massive the cosmos is. God, it fits between his thumb and his pinky. Cosmologists are, are starting to tell us just how big that is, and it's absolutely massive. It's beyond comprehension. The farthest a human being has ever been was Apollo 13, when Apollo 13 had to shoot around the moon. Remember that movie? Kevin Bacon was there. He's always there in all of those scenes. <laughs> And Tom Hanks, whatever. But they were out there, and, and, and humanity was like, we've gone so far, right? If, if they had gone, if they had kept going and tried to go at that pace to the very closest star to Earth, which is called Alpha Centauri, it would take them over 150,000 years to get there. And that's the closest star to us now Cosmologists are suggesting with Hubble telescopes that the universe is 46 billion light years in distance. And God goes, yeah, mm, yeah, something like that. It's, 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 we can't even comprehend it, right? It's amazing. But then he goes on. He goes, he goes not only is God totally above this massive universe, but God's never learned anything. He's never learned anything. Did you notice that? Who taught God? Look at verse 13. Whom did God consult? When God wanted to understand justice or wisdom, who did he, who did he come to to ask for help? And the answer is no one. There's never been a moment where God realized, I need to learn something. And that that it's, it's such a part of our human existence that we can't even imagine what it would be like. I once heard a pastor say, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? 
Wait a minute. No, because I can't even comprehend that, right? That just dawned on me right here, but it's never dawned on God. God's, listen, River West, there's never been a moment where God went, um, I need to learn something, or I need to consult someone. Certainly not us. Who taught God? Well, I sure didn't. Who taught God about justice? Isaiah goes for the jugular here, for the jugular of human arrogance, where especially in our day, it's super popular for people to challenge the morality of God. To think we have got the wisdom and the understanding of what is just to put God in the dock and question his sense of justice. Wow. And God says, who did I ever go to to ask for help with that? No one. No one. Amazing. He's so transcendent. And not only... Has God never learned anything? God's never felt threatened by anything. That's what verses 15 to 17 are about. Now, what's going to be interesting here is God's going to, Isaiah's going to start talking about the nations, all right? Look at this. Here's what he says. Behold, verse 15, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and they are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a bird offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And you know, that's kind of intense. What's Isaiah doing here? What's all this talk about the nations? We've got to remember the people of Israel had been caught up in the machinations of empire building. They were, in, they were in captivity, and for them, Babylon felt like the most monstrous, powerful, resourced empire that had ever existed. The kind of power that when the Babylonian army swept into Jerusalem, it was over before it started, and the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel saw this power, and they were mesmerized, and they were blown away by it and, it, and it felt so big. It's really tempting, isn't it, in our world to see all the power and all the, all the resources and these massive empires and everything that's happening and to get kind of caught up in that and even to wonder, man, this feels super big, right? And God says, that isn't even, that's like a drop in the bucket for me. That's like a little piece of dust on a scale, you know? I don't think he's saying God doesn't care about the nations. All he's saying there is when the nations rebel against me or think they're doing something, it's like it doesn't even phase me. God's never felt threatened. Imagine a, a drop of water out of a bucket. You're, you're carrying a bucket full of water and one little drop falls out. Do you go back and try to get that drop back? No, you're like, whatever. Imagine that you're, you're at the checkout stand and, and, and the checker is is weighing your quinoa at Whole Paycheck or Whole Foods or wherever you go, right? Okay? Now just imagine, the quinoa's on there and it's like 40 bucks a pound, okay? Whatever it is. And you see a tiny little speck of dust on the scale. You go, hey, can you take that off, please? Can you wipe that? This quinoa's... Now, now if you go to Winco, it's even less of a problem for you. But even at Whole Paycheck, it's like, who cares? 
Who cares? Can I suggest something to you, River West? This is exactly how God feels about the movements of the massive empires and powers that think they're running our world. It, it, it would be like a gnat flying and hitting God's leg. And today in our world, maybe it's not so much nations, maybe for, our, for us as Christians, a global Christian community, it's, it's global ideas, ideologies, philosophies that feel threatening to God and to Christianity. And maybe we could tend to become overwhelmed by those things and think, oh my goodness, God's kingdom, his purpose is being, is being overrun by this big idea out there. And God's like, don't worry about it. I've got it. I'm so big, so big. Amazing. Can I ask you something? Is God transcendent in your vision? Is God that big? Is God that otherly? Or do you, or do you need a bigger vision of the transcendence of God in your life? Does your life feel out of control? Do you feel as though there are forces at work in your world that are surely going to take you out and take out everything that God has for you? Do you need to look up and see God the way Isaiah is presenting him? Maybe so. Isaiah wants us to see more. Will you skip ahead? We're going to actually, so let me tell you something about where we're headed. We're going to skip over verses 18 to 20 right now because those are about idolatry, and we're going to talk about that next Sunday, okay? Come back for that. We're going to skip over verses 21 to 24 because those are basically a repeat of what we just talked about. Read it today on the Lord's Day. That's what we do. And what I want to do is I want to focus now on the end of the passage. There's one more thing that Isaiah wants us to see. And what we're about to read in just a moment is one of the most famous passages in the book of Isaiah. And it's beloved by many, many Christian people. I heard people quoting it this morning coming in. I know we're going to Isaiah 40, the end of chapter 40, right? Here we go. Verses 25 and 26 are a hinge. They're the hinge in this passage where Isaiah is about to change directions. He's going to move from one trait to another. And I wonder if you can see how he does it. Will you read it with me? He says, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number. Just pause right there. Put your finger there. Here's what, here's what Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about the stars, the host, the heavenly host. And he invites the people of God to take a minute to pause and to look up and just take in the stars. Now, for people in Babylon, this would have been incredibly poignant because the Babylonians were astrologers. So this is what they did. They were like stargazers, but, but the difference was that in the Babylonian worldview, the stars were the gods. They actually worshipped the stars, and they believed that the stars were dictating human life and meaning. So Babylonians would look up and worship, and Isaiah says, here's what I want you to do, my people, my people of God. I want you to look up, and I want you to ask the question, who created those? 
Who flung those stars into the heavens? Who has the power to do that? Right? And the point of it is, Isaiah, what Isaiah is going to say is, not only did God create every single star, but he knows every single one by name. Do you see this? Look at this. Lift up your eyes, verse 26. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name? By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Isaiah says, not only did God create every single star, he knows every single one of them by name. There are 5,000 stars that are visible to the naked eye. 5,000. This is what the Israelites would have seen. They went outside, they would have looked up. Oh, imagine 5,000. 5,000 stars. Okay? That would have been overwhelming. And they would have started thinking, God knows every one of those by name. But of course, we know there's way more stars than that right? So the closest star to us is Alpha Centauri. Light, when light leaves that star, other than our own sun, which don't look directly at that, okay? But if you're looking at night, the closest star is Alpha Centauri. And when light leaves that star, it is so far away that that light traveling towards us takes over four years to get here. Did you know this? Which is why we say that that star is four light years away, okay? So the thing about light we have to remember is, although light seems instantaneous, you flip on the light switch and it's like, you see it, photons of light actually move. They just move really fast. The speed of light. So that means when you're outside and you look up and you, look up and you see Alpha Centauri, the light that you're seeing is 4.3 years old. And that's the closest star to us. Now, just think about this. I'm gonna, I'm, where I'm going is how many stars there are. There's another star out there that when you look at it, if you actually were to really look close, you would realize that's actually not a star. It's another galaxy called Andromeda, which is the name of every sci-fi TV show that there is. <laughs> and when you look at it, it looks a little bit fuzzier and a little less clear, and that's because it's not a star, it's actually a galaxy that cosmologists have determined has thousands of billions of stars in it. And it is so far away that to the naked eye, it looks like a star to us. The Milky Way has 150 billion stars in it, and cosmologists tell us with the Hubble Space Telescope that there are over, there are hundreds of billions of galaxies just like the Milky Way in our universe. It's, the numbers are impossible to take in, right? We would have to ask Siri, and I actually thought about doing this, Siri, how many stars are there? What would she say? I don't know. She would say one to the times to the 24 or something just absolutely... It's, it's not even, it's, there's no way for us to calculate how many stars there are. And here's the point. God knows every single one of those stars by name. He has a name 
for every single one of them. He can tell the difference one from another. And River West, if God can do that, surely he knows you. He knows what's happening in your life. He knows what you're going through. Look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? By the way, do you notice the names? God not only knows the names of the stars, he knows the names of his people. He names his people. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right, my right is disregarded by my God. The people of Israel were beginning to question, God, have you forgotten me? Where are you, Lord? I feel abandoned. Isaiah says, why do you say that? Verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. There it is, right? Don't you love that passage? It's amazing. I've never met a Christian who doesn't love that passage. The problem with it is we put that passage on inspirational prints with eagles on them, right? And then we totally forget what it's actually about. And it just becomes an inspirational poster. And it's so much more. What does God want you to hear today? He wants you to hear this. God is, he's transcendent, yeah. Oh, he's, he flung every star in the sky. But not only that, he actually could not be closer to you. He knows you. He knows what you're going through. He's with you right now. You're not alone. You're not walking this on your own. Do you feel weary or faint? That's the repeated words in that passage. If you read it again, you'll notice it shows up again and again. The faint and the weary. Isaiah says even, even young people eventually wear out. We see this. Sometimes with our own children, they don't wear out quickly enough. We wish they wore out more quickly. But the point of it is, if kids wear out eventually, I'm going to wear out eventually, and I do. How about you? Sometimes maybe that is an, that's an entire season of your life. Maybe you're in it right now, and you're thinking, I literally cannot go on. This is so hard. God, have you abandoned me? Have you abandoned me? Do you feel faint and weary? In the life of a preacher, those are the words that we use every Monday morning, right when we wake up. It's like, oh, faint and weary, right? But I know that's nothing compared to maybe what you're going through. And here's the point. God's not abandoned you. He is right there in that moment with you. And not only is he there, God wants to transfer some of his power to you. Did you see that? You look at it again. Look with me, verse, verse 
29. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. I didn't understand this until I went on the internet this week, right? And I typed in, how does an eagle fly? Because I wanted to know, what's the metaphor about, right? Because obviously the people who are reading Isaiah's book understood something. And what I learned is that if, you, if you've ever watched an eagle fly, even when they want to gain altitude, they never flap their wings. It's amazing. So there's a video on there of one of these guys who does the nature show. And of course, he's Australian. They're always Australian, right? <laughs> so he's got this awesome accent, you know. And he has an eagle. And he puts the eagle on his arm, and he's in a wind tunnel where he, can, he has a little button. He turns it on, and suddenly there's all of this wind blowing. And at first, I thought it was a little cruel, but he actually had the eagle's talons were tied to his arm so the eagle could not fly away, right? You can only get away with that if you're Australian, by the way. But anyway, so he turns on the wind tunnel, and this, it was amazing. This eagle just goes, and then suddenly... He goes, I, the, the weight of the eagle is completely gone. The eagle's wings just opened up and it harnessed all the wind and then, he, and then the eagle just started to lift off. Didn't even have to flap its wings. And Isaiah says, this is a metaphor for your life. But here's what you have to do. The wind is obvious. The wind is the power of God and God wants to blow that into your life right now. Whatever situation you're in. But did you notice what we're called to do? What is, what is the thing that we're supposed to do in order to turn the sails of our life in such a direction where all of the power of God's wind catches it and we begin to move forward? We have to wait. Did you see that? Verse 31, those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. Your job is to wait. Wait for God. Waiting is a posture of the heart. It doesn't mean you sit around and twiddle your thumbs and not do anything. That's not what waiting is in the Bible. Waiting means you, with uplifted eyes and with uplifted hearts and faith, you reject all the worldly counterfeit solutions that you could go after in our world. When you're in that hard spot, you look past all that stuff and you look up and you say, God, I'm going to trust you right now actively. I'm going to look for you. I'm going to wait for you, and I pray you would fill my sail with the power of your strength so I can keep moving and get through this. And God is so close, and he loves you so much. That is precisely what he wants to do. It's precisely what he wants to do. It's beautiful. It's amazing. So how about you? Which... Of those two things do you most need right now? I want you to think about this today. Which view of God is, is too small? Is God transcendent enough in your vision? Or do you have a small, weak God who can't really do much in your life? Or is God too far away? Is he too distant? 
Do you need a vision of God where, you, where you're reminded God's close, he loves me, he cares about me, he's here to help me, he's here to get me through? This morning we're going to worship and we're going to go to the Lord's table, we're going to take communion together, and I want this time of reflection for you to continue as we go to the Lord's table, ask the Lord, Lord, am, am I out of balance? And do I need to see you more clearly today? I'm going to pray about that right now as the worship team comes. Will you take a minute, bow your heads, posture your heart before the Lord. Father, I believe that although the sermon is over, your communication to us is just beginning. And I want to pray for that in this moment, that you now would speak to each one here. Show us, Lord, who you are. We want to see you. We want to see how big you are, transcendent, totally other. But also, God, we want to see how close and personal and intimately involved you are in our lives. And so we pray for that, Lord. In the song we're about to sing, we'll see both of those traits held together in perfect unity in the face of Jesus Christ, the God-man who entered our world and hung on a cross in our place. Will you captivate our, our senses with your glory, Lord, I pray, as we sing, as we go to the table. I'm thinking this morning, Lord, about friends who have come in here and they're barely holding on. Life has just chewed them up. You know, Lord, you're right there. I sense this morning there are some who are in this space who have considered giving up on God. Just letting it all go and going in a different direction. Would you restore that person this morning, Lord? Would you hold them close? Draw them into your son, Jesus. I sense this morning there are some who have come and they've been questioning and, and skeptical and resisting you, Lord, and I believe that today is the day of salvation for some today. You're planning to meet them and open their hearts and faith to Jesus. I pray for that, Lord. If that's you, it's, it's just a humble, simple prayer of faith where you put your hope in Christ alone for new life, forgiveness of sins. You can do it this morning by going to the table and taking communion for the first time with genuine faith in Jesus. Pray for that, Lord. God, would you minister to us this day, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.